0: By choice, uh, I'm not on Facebook as much as I used to be. I try to limit that uh, to once, twice, maybe three or four times a day. But you know, just uh, I'm not on it as much. But what I what I have noticed is that we, as we are freezing to death here in Illinois, some of our friends are traveling to very nice and warm places that are sun-filled beaches and warm temperatures, and uh, they're not going through negative 35-degree wind chills like we went through last week, and they seem to love to post all the things about their, their trip on Facebook, and it's hard for me not to personally think that they're digging in, just, you know, kind of throwing it in our face just a little bit, look at us, look at where we are, and you're not, ha-ha, <laughs> you know, but uh, I'm a little envious, though, of their trips of course, I would love to be somewhere warmer, and it made me think, I know I've shared this before, but I know, it made me think of the differences between us and the vacations that we, that we take. Uh, I, I've said this, I'm more the, the mountain lake type of person, uh, that seclusion vacation, anybody with me that likes the vacation that's in the middle of nowhere, seclusion Right, you guys can't join me, but I'm glad that you're you like that. Uh, there's other people here that prefer, prefer the sandy beach. How many people are beach people? You're all crazy. You're weird. Okay, so <laughs> I'm definitely the mountain lake cabin type of guy. I don't like the beach at all. When when Carol and I go to the cabin or go to the to the beach to uh, to vacation, I'm counting the minutes before I can get off of the sand and wash the sand from in between my toes. I can't stand that feeling, right? Uh, Carol, on the other hand, when we vacation and we're on the beach, she is in her element. She loves the beach. She puts on her her big floppy sun hat because that's what you do when you're out in the sun. You wear something to keep the sun off of you, apparently. So she wears her big Floppy sun hat, and she lathers herself with the sunscreen, and she gets her beach chair, and it's perfectly aligned, and she sits down, and she can spend hours there just doing nothing except maybe reading a book and soaking in the sun. I, on the other hand, I'm there about five minutes, and I'm wondering have the people next to me heard me snore? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about there on the beach, and I want to relax by reading a, vac- reading a book on vacation. I just want to do it in the middle of a a forest or uh, not squinting in the bright sun. And and I identify with the mountains. Carol, on the other hand, identifies with the beach. So thankful she just now came into service. That's great. So (laughs) I'm the lake guy, and Carol is the ocean girl. And And, of course, I'm just making fun of some of these titles because, of course, we are neither... We live in Illinois. We are snow and ice people, right? We are corn corn and soybean people, aren't we? And so it's easy for us, however, to get caught up in some of the things of this world, how this world likes to define us. You're probably, just because you live here in central Illinois, uh, there's a few outliers, but you're probably either a Green Bay Packers fan or a Chicago Bears fan. One of us in here is a Dallas Cowboys fan. Shh, he's a little sensitive, so just don't, don't, okay, all right. Sports, though, has become this kind of an, an idol in our culture. Uh, the theologian Timothy Keller defined an idol as anything that tempts you to love it more than God. An idol is anything that tempts you to love it more than God. We're going to spend our time today, uh, continue on this story with Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. And so, if you have your Bibles or they're in front of you, um, nobody's sitting in the. Oh, these people over here don't have a Bible in front of them. But everybody else here in the church, you have a Bible in front of you. If you'd like to grab that uh, or look on your device, turn to Daniel chapter 3. It's a little more than halfway through your Bible, you'll find Daniel. So in our chapter today, we're going to learn a lot about this king who has made this giant statue, most probably of himself, and he's forcing people to bow down and worship this statue. Now, us today, we would think, well, now that's stupid. Why would anybody worship this big statue? There's no way that I would do that. Of course, I'm not going to love a statue, more than God. But there are some things in our post-Christian society that have become a modern day idol. If you're taking notes, perhaps uh, one of these will ring a bell to you. One of the first one, uh, in a modern day idol, is identity. We don't think of our identity as an idol, but our identities have certainly become one what we think about ourselves, or maybe even how we label ourselves has become more important than what God says about us. And if we identify ourselves with this self-imposed label, we're, following, we're fa- falling into the hands of idolatry. If our identity is defined by our job or our appearance or our skills, instead of who we are in Christ, then we're always selling ourselves short. It's not what we think or how we label ourselves. It's what God thinks about us. It's about God, how God views us. And we could go on and on about all these self-imposed labels as we try to figure ourselves out. We don't have time for that this morning. Let's just move on to another modern-day idol. Second one is is money. And this is uh, probably self explanatory. Western culture has bowed down uh, to money, possessions. Uh, The pursuit of money and acquisitions of things has become a uh, guiding force for many. And money, the things we have, the things we are able to acquire, has become an idol in our culture. Next one is entertainment. We love to be entertained. And so we're addicted to maybe to our device. We're addicted to a TV show. We're addicted to uh, TikTok our Instagram or Snapchat. And we mindlessly flip through reel after reel after reel. And some people are obsessed with a celebrity. Some people are obsessed with that sports team. And they've allowed that person or that thing to reach a higher place in their life than God is. The next one is Comfort. Comfort has become an idol in our culture. There's an endless list of, of products that are, that are promising if you would just use this, if you would just do that, then you're going to be more comfortable in life and, and you're going to have an easy life. We've made our lives so much easier and much more comfortable in this time in history than any other time in history. But the call... The call that that Jesus gives his followers, you and I, that call that he gives us is a life of ministry. He doesn't call us to a life of comfort. Jesus promises his followers that we are going to face trials, we're going to face persecutions, we're, we're going to face difficulties. And while comfort isn't bad, we all like to be comfortable it can be damaging to us if that's what we're pursuing in life more than God itself. And when we're, when comfort is an idol, we're going to struggle if God ever calls us to do something difficult. And he's always going to call us to do something difficult. Perhaps if we're honest with ourselves, maybe there's an idol or two in your life that has just kind of creeped into your life and you're not trying, you didn't, try to make it that most important thing but it's just kind of shown up and, and habits have forced it to become a little more important than even the direction that God is giving in your life and if we're honest we've, we probably devoted too much time or energy or money in pursuit of an idol and not enough effort in following Jesus back to our story here uh, if you remember it's been It's been about nine years since Daniel chapter two, back when Daniel interpreted that king's dream and remember him and his friends because of of Daniel's interpretation were placed into uh, a position of influence and, and power and they're now working for the king. And so let's read now what's gonna happen in Daniel chapter three, verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, and judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, And all the other provincial uh, officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zether, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, as we've learned about King Nebuchadnezzar, we know that this wasn't an idle threat. This wasn't some sort of a big joke. This was deadly serious. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I have this amazing image that I have set up and I want submission and I want worship from everyone around or else. And maybe unsurprisingly in their culture, everyone just seems to say, okay, if that's what we're supposed to do, then that's what we're going to do. Remember, they've already thought that King Nebuchadnezzar is this larger-than-life type of guy. They they already view him as some sort of God. And so he's made this statue of him that is 90 feet high. And perhaps for most people, just the sight of something so magnificent, a 90-foot-high statue made of gold, was so spectacular that just seeing that caused them to bow, And to worship. It must be a powerful individual and worthy of worship if they could create something so magnificent and so great. Maybe it was for others the fact that their neighbors were bowing down and it made it look like this is going to be the right thing to do. We might as well fall into line. Everybody else is doing it. We don't want to be left out. It seems like we're all supposed to worship this idol, so let's do it together. And maybe for the rest of the Babylonian people, just the thought of that furnace was enough to cause them to to say, well, I don't want to die in a furnace. That doesn't sound like a good time to me, right? All hail King Nebuchadnezzar. I'll do it because I don't want to die. But in verse seven, it says, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, zether, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people... Of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold. Now it's easy for us today to to think to ourselves and to judge and to say, I would never do that. I, I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't fall into that trap. And I hope that we wouldn't. But this idolatry isn't a problem just with this ancient civilization. It's a problem in human, all human societies because the problem has become here, not here. And we can think that I wouldn't do that, but is that what our heart is telling us? See, you know, idolatry is a big problem for us humans, not just because God said don't have any other gods before them, although we don't need another reason just because, I mean, God told us not to. That should be enough reason for us. But idolatry leads to immorality. Idolatry will always lead to immorality. And as soon as something takes the place of God, many more things are going to follow. And we're really not that much different than uh, these ancient Israelites and Babylonians. We're not a whole lot different than them. We get caught up in the spectacle of things too. We want the biggest, and we want the best, and we want the most flashy things as well. We may not worship a 90-foot golden statue, but maybe we worship Ford or Chevrolet or BMW. We may may not worship a 90-foot statue, but maybe we worship Coach or Gucci or Nike or Adidas. Maybe that's become our idol or our God. And we do it because the person next to us has that new car, and we deserve a new car too, right? We we deserve one. The student next to us has the Jordan 1 low Travis Scott edition tennis shoes, and we want them too. Yes, I had to look that up. I have no clue what that means. (laughs) See, the bottom line is we worship idols because we think that it's gonna put us in a position of respect that we think we deserve. We want the idol that, uh, we want what the idol promises us. We want to belong, we want to be like others. And, And we accept society's labels on us because it's a whole lot easier than fighting against it. See, idol worship is found in our agendas, It's found in our goals. It's found in our significance. It's found in our reputation. Because we figure all of those things are going to be advanced. They're going to be furthered if we place that idol above God. It will get me to where I want to go in life. And so these men gathered around this statue in ancient Babylon, and they thought the same thing, that if they bow down to this idol if they declared their allegiance to it, and if they worshiped the king's image, their status, their position would be advanced or their life would be spared. And everybody did it except for three. I remember those friends of, of Daniel from last week, those guys whose names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three guys said, nope, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down to this idol. We will only worship God. Apparently, there were some of the Babylonians that didn't like where these three guys had had risen. And their status was, was too high. Maybe they were a little bit jealous of them. And so they went to the king and they tattled on him. And they said, hey, king, there's these three Jewish guys. And they're not bowing down to the idol at all. They're refusing to do it. And the king became furious. He said, How dare them? Take them to the furnace. Verse 19, look at this. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. If you grew up in, in Sunday school, you, you already know how this story ends. I know when I was in kid zone, and in those five years, we probably told this story at least four times. It's a popular story uh, for us to tell in church and in Sunday school. But if you were hearing this story for the very first time, you would cringe and maybe you'd be on the edge of your seat because these three young men were thrown into a furnace and just FYI, the, uh, the temperature of a furnace burning, the fuel that would have existed in, in Babylon would have normally burned at a temperature of about 1,800 degrees. But the king was so mad at these three, that he had that furnace stoked up to seven times as hot. It was so hot that it killed the soldiers that were holding those three Jewish men. Why was the king so mad? Well, he was mad because these three, in verse 17, tell him this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And it makes me wonder. I wonder, what, I wonder what we would have said facing death by being thrown into a blazing hot Furnace. I, I tell you, getting burned is probably one of my biggest fears. When I was in, in fifth grade, I, I spilled grease on my hand. I still have a pretty big scar here from it. And, and so just the thought of being burned is horrific to me. Now, a, a furnace that hot probably would have meant instant death, but this still is not an experience that any of us want or, or would look, f- look forward to, Right? So what would we have said? If we were one of these young, now they're in their young, their, their lower 20s, if we were one of these 20-something guys with their whole life ahead of them, what would, what would we have said? I think a lot of people would immediately rationalize this decision and just say, well, it's just a one-time deal, right? As long as the king sees us do it, we'll be off the hook. What's the harm in bowing down to the to this image, to this idol one time? What's the harm in that? At least we stay alive. And come on guys, we know this isn't real anyway. We know this is just a statue. We know it's just a joke. You know, it's not God, it doesn't have any power. Why why wouldn't we just bow down to it? Why wouldn't we just give into it? I mean, and we're far from home. Home is 900 miles away. Nobody's gonna see what we're doing here. Nobody's gonna know we don't have to tell anybody we don't even need to tell Daniel he may not even find out and and look everybody else is doing it no one's going to notice if we just join in just to save our own necks and the king has after all been pretty good to us I mean we have all of our, we owe him our job our house everything we we have now is it's because of him I know we'll feel bad about it at the time, but surely our conscience won't nag us forever about this. Eventually, our, our conscience will settle down and it won't nag us forever. And honestly, if we bow down just this one time, we're not going to die. And If we don't die, then, then I can be useful for God later, right? I mean, God wants to do things through our lives, and so if we, if we just save our skin if we're just alive if we just do this to stay alive then God can use us later and so let's just do this real quick because it doesn't mean anything to us anyway we know the truth and plus that furnace is pretty hot we don't want to go in there the script that's in in our in God's word in the Bible doesn't say any of that it doesn't say that they said those words at all What they did say is we believe in God so much that we believe he can rescue us. We believe that he is powerful enough to save us. But even if we do die today, we will still not disobey God. They would have had a familiar verse, these verses going through their heads, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall now not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the Ten Commandments, Numbers 1 and 2. And they would have had these things going through their heads, and we can't. Bow down to this image because God told us no. And if these three young men stood in front of that angry king and a, and a blazing fire and they said, if we die, we die, but we will not bow down to that idol. We will not do it. This is a, a huge example of a godly faith I think that we often think that Christian faith is is believing in something in spite of the evidence for it. Where really Christian faith is believing in something in spite of the consequences for it. I'm a Bears fan. I know all about faith in spite of consequences, right? See, that definition of, of Christian faith reminds me of of Martin Luther who started the reformation of the church and he was threatened he's he was told to recant his words and his response was this here I stand I can do no other help me God he believed in spite of the consequences that he was going to face and for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for Martin Luther, and for countless others that, that face death because of their faith, unless they turn back on God, disobedience for all of them was not an option. Even the disciple that followed Jesus named Peter would later write in, in a book that bears his name in 1 Peter 4, 2, it says, He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you. Don't be surprised. See, but trials in the life of a committed Christian are not the exception. They are the norm. Write this down. Faith in God looks a lot like obedience no matter the consequence. Faith in God looks a lot like obedience, no matter what the consequences are. The life of a Christian will be different than the society that is around us, or at least it should be. The Christian Christian life will look a lot like us resisting the attractiveness of idols It will look a lot like us refusing to be like everybody else and accepting the consequence of our obedience to God. We may face name-calling, exclusion from certain circles, perhaps even unemployment, even even worse. And in this post-Christian society, that may become more and more and more of our norm. I'm not saying this to scare you, but just to make sure that we're ready. The Apostle Paul wrote, once wrote this to his student, Timothy. He says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And they will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you... But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. And when I look at our story from today, I don't know if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were afraid. I don't hear it in their words. Their faith was so strong in spite of the consequences that was right before them. But we also know the rest of the story. We know what happened inside the fiery furnace. Let's look look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Why do Christians have faith despite the consequences? Because as it was for these three, it will be for us. Jesus will always be in the furnace with us. You can have faith in your fiery furnace. You can have faith in the middle of that chaos. You can have faith in the middle of that that tragedy that you face. Because our God is a God who has this history of delivering his people. He delivered the Israelites out of slavery as he parted the sea to allow them to cross over on dry land. He delivered the Israelites from the power of the Philistines with a rock in the hand of a young kid named David. He's going to deliver his exiled people out of Babylon so they can go back home and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. But most importantly, he sent his son He sent his son to deliver us from certain death because of our sin. We serve a God who has already walked through the fiery furnace of hell so that we don't have to. That's who we serve. And that's a promise to everyone who gives their life over to Jesus. Write this down. Obedience to Jesus does not mean that we skip the furnace here on earth. No, obedience means that we may be thrown right into the middle of it. In the middle of the fire is often, though, where we're going to see God the clearest. I don't know. I know that God has already delivered me from the worst possible fiery furnace that I was destined to go to without faith in him. But I also know that the furnaces that I face here on earth, the chaos and the tragedies and all the things that uh, I will go through and even the things that I'll go through because of my faith, I know Jesus is going to be with me every single time. And so for you today, maybe you need to complete that sentence in in your life. I will not bow down to, not out of of defiance to, to mankind, but because of our obedience to Jesus? What's the golden idol that the Lord has shown you this morning? What is that thing in your life that you know has has taken the rightful place of God and you've allowed it to, to rise above your faith in Christ? What's taking your attention away from God? What has become so important in your life that you've forgotten about your Savior? Don't bow down to it. Even if a post-Christian society doesn't understand you, even if they think that you're foolish, know that Jesus is always right in the middle of the furnace with you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of these three young men of great faith. We thank you, Lord, that they had their relationship with you, that even when faced with a fiery furnace, they knew that you could save them. But even if you didn't, you were so important in their life that they would not bow down to that idol. Lord, it's a whole lot harder maybe for us to, to fight against an idol that's just not as bright and hot as that furnace or, or that, that, uh, that 90-foot golden statue. Maybe the idols in our life have kind of quietly creeped in. And, and something that we did just as, as entertainment now has become more important. And it's grown and a habit has been formed. And, and now, Lord, that's more important than you are. Our mind tells us that it's not, but our heart tells us that it is. So, Lord, what is that golden idol in our lives? What is that idol that we need to refuse to bow down to? And Lord, when we refuse to bow down to society's idol, we know, Lord, that we will face a furnace. We will face difficulties and chaos and even tragedy. But remind us, Lord, that just like you were with those three young men in the middle of that furnace, that with our faith and our obedience to you, you too will be in the furnace with us and you will get us through it. And that's all we need. We need you, Jesus, to be with us in the furnace that we face. Help us to have the faith of these three young men. But they had faith in you because they had a relationship with you. So let us start there. Help us, Lord, to renew our relationship with the only one who will ever walk through the furnace with us. Help us to come back to you, Jesus. If anybody here is is needing to do that or is wanting to do that, then would you find one of the the pastors here? We'd we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. Love to help you back on track with your journey with Jesus. Lord, we thank you for loving us enough that you would walk through the fiery furnace that we face because of our obedience to you. We love you, Jesus. You are worthy to be praised. And all of us said together, amen.